while that's loading, we're going to be, Lord willing, finishing up Corinthians this morning. First Corinthians, we're in chapter 16. The Lord allows it. We're going to finish this chapter this morning. And then I know the question on all of your minds, where are we going next? Next Sunday, we will be in the minor prophet of Joel. So Joel, we'll start that up next. I know some of you, we won't admit who, but some of you have never even read that book before. So it'll be exciting. I, I encourage you to read it ahead of time. Well, money and people in ministry. You know, a lot of times if you go to church or you've been to church growing up, you may have been a part of a fellowship where you might have one, two, three, twelve offerings all in the same service where they're constantly talking about money, constantly talking about ministry and ministry needs. And one of the reasons why we have what's called expositional teaching, that means verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book teaching, is that we're always going to teach as much as the Lord wants us to teach on a subject in the order that he wants to teach it in. And so here we are all the way at the very end of the book, and now he's going to talk about money. And now he's going to talk about ministry. They're important. They're placed in the book for a reason. And they have their proper place, but we have had 15 chapters about how to do church, how to have communion together, how to have fellowship, the gifts of the Spirit, the things that we should all be focusing on. And then now, as we go into verses 1 through 4 together, he's going to talk about this offering to Jerusalem. But before he does that, let's go before the Lord in prayer, ask that he would lead us in his word this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for the goodness that is your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would be growing in you and being used by you that you would write these words on the tablets of our heart and that we would receive from you this morning in Jesus' name. And let's read verses 1 through 4 together. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you are approved by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So we see a couple of things here. Number one, they're having a collection that Paul has ordered throughout Galatia and in Corinth as well. And this collection of money is for the church in Jerusalem. Why does the Jerusalem church need it more than any of the other churches? Well, in Acts chapter 11, there was a prophecy that there's a famine in Jerusalem. That's one reason. Second reason, you have religious persecution. The completed Jews or Jews that accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. We won't say they're leaving the Jewish faith because they're not. They're completing that faith. And they have been ostracized from those that have rejected Jesus Christ. What do I mean by ostracized? That means separated to the point that they had mock funerals for family members that accepted Jesus. You can't go to your job. You can't go to your synagogue. You can't buy and sell in the marketplace only fellowship with pagans and other believers. You, you have to go outside of the nation of Israel. And so there's a lot of people struggling financially. And then we also know from the book of Acts, there's a lot of widows in Jerusalem at that time that are being supported by the ministry. So lots of different reasons why in Jerusalem they needed a special offering. Notice that when Paul commands this offering, he wants it done when? Before he shows up. Before he shows up. And when do they make this collection? On the first day of the week. Now, in our American brains, we may think that the first day of the week is Monday. Wrong. Look at your calendar. What's that day on the far left? Sunday. 
Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the Sabbath day, the last day. Jesus has completed the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. But I don't want us to get messed up here. It doesn't matter what day we worship the Lord, but that was their custom, and it is ours as well. In Romans 14, 5, it says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. It also says in Colossians chapter 2, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or, or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ. I don't know if Kevin Icano's in here. I just want to point that verse out to him that he cannot judge me in food or drink. He <laughs> likes to do that to me every once in a while. But we need to worship the Lord equally, not just on Sunday morning, but on Monday afternoon, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday. Every day is the Lord's day. But we see in the Bible, there was a unique day of the week, the first day where they did gather together. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says that very thing. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And you thought, I go a little long. Now, there's something to be said. Why did they have to have it a Sunday night, a Sunday night service? When I was growing up in Calvary Chapel, we had a Sunday night service. It was great. Well, they don't have Sunday as a day off in the Roman world. And if you're a slave, you're not getting out of work, and so they would probably gather in the evening time. I don't know that for a fact, but we need to be clear. Now, what are they collecting? We've talked about the day. We've talked about the order. We've talked about who it's going to. But they are collecting money, what's known in the Bible as tithes and offerings. Paul doesn't want it to be a distraction from the teaching of God's word. He says he wants it done before he goes there. And it is interesting to me as a pastor that there are many people, many believers, they don't know if they're Calvinist or Arminian. They don't know if they're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, post-millennial. They don't know much about doctrine, but everyone seems to be a theologian when it comes to an opinion on whether tithing is important or not. Well, that's outside of the law. That's before the law. That's after the law. We need to, and then they come and approach me like I care. I'm not getting the money. Y'all goes to the Lord. But the Bible tells us that Abraham made a tithe to this random guy by the name of Melchizedek. What does that matter? Number one, it's before the law was given. It's before Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's before Mount Sinai. Now, some of you are nodding your heads. You know who Melchizedek is. Some of you are like, Melchizedek, who? A what? Well, back in Genesis 14, this is what's written of this guy. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine he was the priest of God Most High. Wow, that's pretty cool. And he blessed him and said, Bless, Blessed be Abram, the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so what's the context here? Abram had to go to battle to get some people that he had lost in his tribe. He had to go to battle to get some stuff back that was robbed from him. And he gets it, and then he goes to this random guy, Melchizedek. The Bible says he has no tribe, no lineage, popped out of nowhere. And when Abram sees him, he knows he is a priest of God Most High. And you're like, okay, what's the big deal here? Well, he gives 10% of everything he got in that battle to this guy, to God. And that wouldn't mean anything to us. 
except for in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is our great high priest. Yeah, I, I get that. But it says he's a high priest by the order of Melchizedek. Why does that matter, who, what order it is? Because Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is not a priest. Not by, the, not by that lineage. He is our great high priest by the order of Melchizedek. Some, and I'm not one of them, but some believe that Melchizedek was Jesus Christ himself. Interesting. Interesting. But we're getting off topic here. There is Abram giving 10% of what he earns to the Lord. Now, if this is your first time here, listen, we've already had our offering. We're not receiving it again. There's no plate coming. There, there's not going to be people checking your wallets. I, I feel your pain. Some of you are like holding your wallet to your pants. Like, no, 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 no. Got your purse. I don't, we, we're not after that. We're just teaching the scripture. Because there's, there's two schools of thoughts here. There's one that is God doesn't need my money. He's, he doesn't need anything. The church is trying to rip me off. They just want to get something for nothing. That's the camp I used to come from. That's my family right there. There's another camp, though, on this other side that says give to God. To anything you give to God, he's going to bless it times 10. Anything you give him, you can't outgive the Lord. Just trust him and you'll be prosperous. That's not biblical. That's not true. That's not true, but we are called to give. In fact, Jesus puts his blessing on tithes and offerings when he's arguing, or I should say instructing the Pharisees. They've, they've got things out of whack. In Matthew 23, 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Uh, he, he doesn't say there's anything wrong with tithing. He says you're doing well, that's good, but you're neglecting the more important things of the law. Now, I'm going to go a little bit deeper now. For the disciple of Christ, this is not for the new believer. This is for those of us who say we are Christians, who are going into the world, who are preaching the gospel, and you call yourself a disciple. But the prophet Malachi, God is using him to go after, to discipline, to instruct his priests who are supposed to be representing him in the temple. And he is calling a judgment on them because they're not worshiping him. They're not following the law. They don't have the temple open. His house is not a house of prayer. And then he also condemns them for one other thing. He calls them robbers and thieves. His priests, he calls them. Why does he call them that? In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. But notice that there's two things there, tithes and offerings. I keep referring to tithes and offerings. The tithe is a 10%. And then some people are looking at me like, Well, is it gross or net? I don't care. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, this is between you and the Lord. You know, I don't even like teaching these verses. This is where we're at. This is what we've got to teach. But notice the 10%. I know so many people, they want to count it down to the penny. Like those Pharisees, they want to get every little pe pepper seed, every little mint leaf. They don't want to give a penny over. The only way I want to be like that is to Caesar. See, the Bible says, Give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's. 
I will give unto Caesar. I'll pay him my taxes, but not a penny more than I'm legally obligated to do so. You better believe I'm counting every little cent. No, no, no. But to the Lord. No, you give 10%, and then you also give offerings. You know, the fellowship here gives 10%, at least, minimum 10% to missionaries. We want to give it to God. I'm I'm pleased to say that we're over that percentage. But there are areas in my family where we tithe, but then the Lord will put on Megan a nice heart, and we support other missionaries over and above what's happening here. We'll give a one-time offering or a gift. That is a tithe and an offering. It's interesting how we get so stingy when we talk about money. But Jesus said, where your money is, there your heart will be also. Notice that Paul, in the scripture here, wants all of this business we're talking about done before he gets there. Because the money, it's important, but it's not a priority. The priority is the reading and teaching of God's word. It's instruction and discipleship. Those are the things we need to be focused on. Remember, 16 chapters into it, Paul wants to talk about it. We need to put things in the right perspective. Lastly, I want to say that it's very interesting that the the words that Paul uses for these offerings, these tithes, here he uses the word cherish. It means grace, a grace offering. In other portions of scripture, he'll use the word koinonia, which means fellowship, a fellowship offering. And then in other areas, he'll use the word diakonia. That's the same root word for uh, deacon. It means practical or serving offering, or ministry offering would be another word for it. Now, don't be getting impressed. I'm not a Greek scholar. I just read the guys that are, and I can, I can parrot it pretty well. But it is fascinating to see that it is a part of our walk with God, is being givers, tithes and offerings. Again, if you're not a disciple of Jesus or you're a non-believer, we don't want your money. This is a family issue. This is an, you just keep yours to yourself. You need to repent and get saved. Then we'll talk. Now, verses 5 through 12. All three people, I get my sense of humor. <laughs> verses 5 through 12. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Verse 8. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be, be with you without fear, for he does, not, he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now, we're going to see some practical things here about ministry. What do we see about Paul? He says, well, I might come then, or I might come now, or I might get stuck in the wintertime, or I might go by this way. You know, the Lord's opened a door for me. And there is never a time as a pastor that I am more annoying to people when I act as, oh, I don't know, we'll see how the Lord leads. You know, we'll go in this direction. Now, notice how he's very organized, very established when it came to offerings, to gathering together, doing things decently in order, in one hand. And then on the other hand, 
He allows for the moving of the Holy Spirit, for the direction of God. He knows that things might not work, may not work out that way. You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I, I use this word, verse all the time. You know, we need to allow the Lord to guide us and direct us in our plans. I want you to see another misconception. Because a lot of times with ministry, the first misconception is that everything has to be organized and perfect or needs to be completely spirit-led. It's kind of in between. The other misconception, have you ever heard when the Lord closes a door, he opens another? Now, that is in the book of Revelation. It says the Lord can open a door that no man can shut and shut a door that no man can open. That's for sure. But we have a misconception about this open door from the Lord. Our misconception is that when the Lord opens that door, it will be easy. It will be smooth sailing, that there will be no problems. Obviously, because the Lord opened that door, he shut the hard door, right? But what does it say there in verse 9? In verse 9, it says, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Wait a minute. Another misconception. Just because the Lord has opened a door doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. Doesn't mean there won't be problems. Yes, there are going to be problems. The other interesting thing that I find very difficult in my walk with the Lord is the Lord does not shut a door and open one. He closes three and opens four and then says, which one do you want to go to? You're like, Lord, but I don't want any options, Lord. Just pick for me the right one. But we see in our walk, just like Paul is saying here, hey, I I may be stuck in the winter. I may go over here. I may go this way. I may go that way. Let's see which doors the Lord has opened and we'll walk in them by faith. And we'll see. What's another misconception we see in this portion of Scripture? Remember how early in verses 1 through 4, Paul commanded, he sent an order for them to make this collection? But did you notice that with Apollos there? What did Apollos say to Paul? No. See, Paul asked Apollos, hey, can you go down there? And what does he say? It says in verse 12, He was quite unwilling to come at this time. That is a very nice way of saying, he told me no. You know, sometimes we think in the ministry, like the pastor or the elders, they're dictators, they're in control. They tell people what to do and they do it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Sometimes we think these apostles like Paul, they floated around everywhere with great robes and everyone did everything they said. In 2 Corinthians Paul has to make a defense of his apostleship more than any other epistle. Fascinating. Nothing has changed. And pastors and elders and leaders, we are not to lord over the flock. We're not dictators. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly nor as being lords over those who, excuse me, over the lords, over those who entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I'm a bit selfish. I want the crown. I'm going to give it right back to the Lord. Don't worry. But I'm after that thing. Now we see, though, that we're not to be lords, dictators. You know, we say, no, we walk in the Lord together. The Lord is the master. But how many times did the disciples say, not so, Lord? How many times did they say no to him? They can. You see, we have to make 
we have to make choices and decisions in our relationship with God, and we need to make decisions to bow the knee to him, to be obedient to him. We need to be able to say no to leadership if the Lord, truly the Lord, is leading us in other areas. Another misconception, if we didn't have enough, Paul has to tell them about Timothy. And what does he say about Timothy? Hey, hey, don't despise him. I would be thinking like, man, he's sending Timothy? You know who that guy is? (coughs) If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. In verse 11, let no one despise him. Why does he have to write those things? Because people were despising him, I'm quite sure. People were kind of bullying him around, maybe. We know he was a young man. It's like, you can't treat a minister in the faith that way. You can't treat a disciple of Paul, the apostle, this way. And yet it was happening. In fact, Paul has to encourage Timothy in his epistle to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. If you're a leader in the faith, you are an example, not a boss, not a sergeant, not a king. You're a shepherd. You're a servant. And people will follow you because you are an example, because you are closer to the Lord, and they want to be closer to the Lord, therefore they will follow you. But we should never think to ourselves that it's because of us. You know, a side note, you know, what's going on right now? Poor old Elon got that Twitter. He's taking a hatchet to that place. And I'm just like you. I'm eating my popcorn. Like, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I don't care. But he may get that thing super successful. It's kind of the American dream. I'm going to make things happen by force of will and sure strength. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to make this thing work. Nothing could be farther from ministry. Now, many people have been very successful doing that. You know, going against the grain, when everyone's against them, they make a choice, and it's the right choice, and they see them through. Another great example of that is Churchill, Winston Churchill in World War II. But what do we see in the ministry? That is not the way it is in serving Jesus Christ. We are shepherds and examples, exemplars. And when you fail, you will. You'll be an example on repentance and an example on following up the Lord and humbling yourself. You see, ministry is a team of people. When all of us are working together and serving in our unique areas, Apollos has a certain call, Timothy has another, we're going to see a few other people in a a few. But the only way that that team can serve God is by following the instructions given us in verses 13 and 14 here. Let's look at them together. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that, you'd be, all that you do be done with love. Now, for many of us, because all of culture is kind of divided right now, so you can't summarize it in one group. But for many of us, you grew up in a generation like me, you would think that these things are mutually exclusive, right? To be loving, that's not being strong. That's not being brave and steadfast. Like You, you can't have those two things together. You can be loving and sensitive and... You know, all those mucky, yucky things I don't want to deal with over here on the right. And then you have watch, steadfast, be strong. Yes, I like those things. I want to be in that camp. But what does Paul say? You can't watch, be steadfast, or brave, or strong, unless you do it in love. 
Now, if you're a student of history or, or you study those things, you're a weirdo like I am, and, and you think of guys that are in combat and you, you listen to these veterans and they tell you, you know, they're, they're not effective. They're not able to put themselves in, hard's in harm's way because they hate their enemy. It's because they love what's behind them. It's because of their passion and their love for their brother next to them that they are willing to put themselves in hard's way to protect their friends, their brothers, their sisters. And so it is true with the household of faith for us as believers. It's our love for God and our love for each other that we're able to watch, to be steadfast, brave, strong. No, in this world we're told that they're separate, but we see when we follow our great high priest, Jesus Christ, they go hand and hand. When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said, don't I know, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? Jesus said, you have no power and no authority that my Father in heaven has not given you. Don't you know I have the power to call down legions of angels? But did he? No. That's power. That's being steadfast. That's being strong and strength and being loving. I want you to take it a step further. Our, our Lord who would had a crown of thorns and the whips on his back. I want you to think of those temple guards that punched him in his face. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that he holds all things. He, through him all things consist and exist. That means that if our Lord wanted to, as that fist was coming to his face, he could evaporate the atoms right there. How do you like me now? But no. But no. Because of love, he was able to be strong and compassionate and steadfast. He was able to stand there and take it for you and I. As believers, we are to do the same. And we do it as the family of God. Now as we read verses 15 through 21, we're going to see another cast of characters, more people that Paul is ministering with. I urge you, brethren, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. I, in the first service, I could not say his name to save my life. We started calling him Steph because I just couldn't do it. That it is the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus. Say, there it goes again. Fortunatus and Achaicus. For what was lacking on our part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. We talked about Timothy. We talked about Apollos. And now we have Stephanus. Stephanus. And we have Fortunatus and Achaicus. So it says the household of Stephanus. I'm going to start calling him Steph. I can't do it. He's the owner. Fortunatus and Achaicus are slaves, household slaves, and yet they're listed equally here. Another fascinating thing is that these three guys, owners and slaves together, brothers in the Lord, are the ones that brought the questions that Corinth had to Paul. And they are the ones that bring this epistle, 1 Corinthians, back to Corinth to be read. They have a mission together. 
Aquila and Priscilla, this husband and wife team, they were with Paul in Corinth and in Ephesus. They ministered together and they worked together, this group. They also had a home church. They were pretty well-to-do, and it says the church that is in their house greet you. See, every single one of us have a mission in Christ together. You know, there are a lot of problems in Corinth, right? This whole epistle is corrective. They were suing each other. They were having crazy love speech. They were distracting one another. The gifts of the Spirit were out of order. And there's a lot of problems here at Calvary Chapel Low Country, whether you know it or not. But we are the best dysfunctional family going because each and every one of us has a unique calling from God, whether it's the soundboard, the ministry, the youth, the teaching of God's word, encouraging one another in our tithes and offerings. All of those things are used together for the Lord. We are a big family in Christ. Now, those that want to lead here are called to be elders, disciples, teachers, both the men and the women to the women. We have a unique calling in Christ, and all of us work together. Notice how Paul had to tell them, hey, submit to one another and submit to them as you would to us. It's a good reminder to each and every one of us that we have to submit one to another in godly love. It takes all of us to perform this mission. Now, if any one of you tries to greet me with a holy kiss, I'm going to greet you with a holy fist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a cultural thing. You don't need, no, no. I don't even like hugs, y'all. I know. Why well, is Calvary Chapel? Yeah, I know. No, I'm different. <laughs> Just stop it. Now, Paul, Paul is a much more mature brother in the saint, obviously, than I am. Because look what he writes here in verses 22 to 24. It says, But if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's start with verse 22. In the Greek, it says anathema and maranatha. Anathema means curse to damnation. You know, if you, if you don't t accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be damned for all of eternity. So turn or burn. Repent. I'm like, you can't say that. That's rude. Well, it is rude, but it is true. It is true. You know, so many people are trying to water it down. You know, Paul is sealing this letter. You will be anathema if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you have, Maranatha. See, Jesus is coming back. That's what it means. He is returning. And you may have seen churches at the Maranatha. Early in the Jesus movement, uh, the Jesus people days, early in the Calvary movement and the work of God at that time, they used to say that to each other, Maranatha, Maranatha. You know, come, Lord Jesus, come. Notice that they're looking for the glorious return of the Lord. They're not looking for the Antichrist. They're not looking for the mid-tribulation. They're not looking to see who, what thing in the news is going on. It is interesting to me, in a sad way, that many who think they are disciples of Christ are missing the weightier, mass, uh, the weightier matters of the gospel because they're focusing on these things that are not important. We need to be looking for Christ in everything we do, his mission, his purpose, and his return. Because he is the Lord of all creation. It is through him that we are saved. And then Paul, because he's a manlier man than I am, says this L word in verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And I double checked, you know, it is that agape, self-sacrificing, fullest love 
tells them that he loves them. I recently had someone very important in my life that wasn't my, my mom or my dad tell me, a brother in the Lord, I love you, bro. And I'm just like, oh, you awkward silence. I can't say, I just can't do it. I can't. You're not my wife. You're not my mom or my kids. I'm not telling you I love you. I may feel it. I may think it. I just, I'm weak. What can I say? Not happening. And I just sat there with awkward, awkward silence. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Man, I felt terrible. Paul's not like that though. See, Paul's strong. He's able to lead them with these corrective epistle. He's able to instruct them in the ways of God. Because remember, Paul can't be strong. He can't be steadfast without doing all things in love. He told us that in verses 13 through 14. Here he is from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16. Corrective, strong, discipleship, encouraging, and yet also telling them where they were in error. And they had to receive that. And you had guys like Apollos who were like, yeah, Paul, I'll get to it when I get to it. That's all a part of the ministry. And remember, we all do this together. See, Paul is just a messenger of the work of God. And he realizes that. Timothy is the same. Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila. Stephanias, who's bringing the gospel back, this epistle, I should say, with his brothers who also work for him. Slaves. A unique time in history and yet do we really care about each other see I may not be able to say it but I will show it week after week day after day through works driven by a love for God and a love for his people not to Lord not to be a commander I pray to be an example as Paul was an example he can say follow me as I follow Christ I pray that we can say the same Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this book. And, and there's so many things as we closed it out. I, I pray that we would grow stronger in you. Filled by your spirit, encouraged, Lord, to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And I, I pray that we would be able to do the things that are written in this book through your spirit, Lord, as we grow in our own personal discipleship. Let your will be done through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come on up. We'd love to meet with you. we got gifts for you. We want to share with you. If you have a story or need a prayer request, come on up. There's brothers and sisters up here to pray with you. God bless you. I will see you on not Wednesday. Don't be that guy. God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.